defining your own success. And for me, that actually, to be honest, we didn't talk about this, but this was, that was actually a big deal for me because I had a different idea of what success was supposed to look like. You know, I was a journalist. I wanted to go work for the New York Times or I wanted to write for National Geographic. And that's what you did. If you're a journalist, this is the vision of success. And there was a moment where I had stepped off that and had to redefine, but that isn't what I want. That's not what success looks like for me. And I was the kind of that, like that kid in school who was like, you know, one in A's in every class and, you know, extra credit. And, you know, so for me, choosing to not go for the extra credit was like a big, like, you know, a big mental shift for me to be like, oh, it's not about being an editor at the New York Times. It's about like buying a farm. And that was not an easy shift for me. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Have you ever done something that made no sense on the surface? That might have seemed a little crazy to other people, but you decided to do it anyway because you felt absolutely compelled to do it. In her 40s, Julie Carrick Dalton and her husband bought a tract of forest next to her family's land in New Hampshire that was in danger of being timbered and developed. She built a small organic farm from scratch while learning how to farm and managed to preserve 92 acres of forest all while writing her first novel and raising four young kids. She acknowledges it's been a bumpy journey, but well worth facing the hard work, mistakes, and rejections along the way. And she's a firm believer that there's a lot of sunshine on the other side of 50. At 51, she finally found her stride. Her debut novel, Waiting for the Night, just launched in January as a most anticipated 2021 book from CNN, USA Today, Parade, Newsweek, and BuzzFeed, and was an Amazon Best Book of the Month. I'm so excited for you to meet her. Here's Julie Carrick Dalton. Let's go. Hey, Julie, thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I love that when, when you sent me an email letting me know what was going on for you and, and, you know, about your new book and everything else, I instantly was like, knew that I wanted to talk to you right away. Um, so I'm so glad this is, this is our second chat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I am going to, I'm just going to have you take over for a second and take us back to, um, I mean, there's so, I mean, there's so much with, with the, the farming and the book and the everything, I'm going to let you kind of go back and pick your starting point for where you feel like your pivot happened or where you felt the, 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 the need to, to jump in and do what you're doing, which is yeah. enormous. Yeah. So it's, it's, it sounds like they don't go together farming and writing a novel, but they really do. Um, and so for me, I'm a mom of four kids. And so I was a journalist for a long time. And I was, then after I had my third child, I was like, well, maybe I need to stay home for a little bit because the daycare costs and everything. So I was home for a long time and I started dabbling in fiction and, you know, growing things in pots outside. And as my kids got older, I started really feeling this pull that there was like more out there for me to be doing. And as my kids got older, when I was in my forties, I made this crazy leap 
because um, there was a piece of land that was on the market near our home. It was a pristine, beautiful forest and it was on the market for timber and development. And they were marching through the forest and clear cutting it. And it was just devastating because we had deer and moose and bear that would walk into our yard. And so they, I, I couldn't stand it. So my husband and I just took this crazy leap and we bought the land to sit, so that the moose wouldn't be homeless, basically. Yeah. And so we built a farm on it because we needed a business reason to own this piece of property or else that would make no financial sense. So I had to learn how to be a farmer. I spent, I studied how to build wow. a barn. Like I studied, spent a year studying barn architecture. Um, so we built this farm. And at the same time, you know, my kids are getting older. I'm getting a little bit more autonomy, you know, that they were moving into, you know, older grades in high school. And I have, I have college graduates now. And so I started writing a book and as the book took place in New Hampshire, where my farm is, and they kind of became one thing for me. I started, I was writing the book. I was doing agricultural research. I was digging, moving, hauling rocks out of my field, and then going home and studying those rocks to find out more about them. And it all became one story. So my novel, it's called Waiting for the Night Song, it's set in rural New Hampshire in the mountains and lakes and uh, forests um, in New England. And it's about, it takes place against the backdrop of climate change because as I was building my farm, I started observing phenomenon in my growing region that um, made me stop and think about what was going on in this quiet corner of New Hampshire because I don't think anybody thinks like, oh, New Hampshire, that's the epicenter of climate change. And we don't think about right. that. Right. What were you seeing change. specifically? Like what, what was coming up that you were noticing? Well, so it started that in the lake, we have all these invasive species of plants and that are choking out native species. And, and in the forest, there are these trees and these invasive trees that have moved into the forest and are choking out other trees. And suddenly I was the, the steward of a 100 acre forest. So I needed to get to know my forest. So I'm observing these things. And I looked at, I saw this map of maple trees and my, my forest is gorgeous. It is like stunning. It has all these, you know, beautiful sugar maples, those iconic trees you see on postcards. And the, um, the map of where maple trees exist is moving north. Like the bottom edge of the habitat for maple trees is moving towards Canada. And all of a sudden I had this panic, like, aren't my maple trees could be gone in 50 years from my growing region. So I did a deep dive into what other things are endangered and what other invasive species are moving in. And that cracked open this whole trove of research. And it really shaped my novel by understanding how the ecology in my growing area was shifting. Where do, so this is a complete like ignoramus question, <laughs> but where do the invasive species come from? They're, they're, they're brought in from somewhere, I'm going to assume. Well, it's a, that's a really good question because it, it's not, it, that's not one answer to it. So a lot of the invasive species in lakes come from other boats. If you are in a boat in one lake and you bring your boat and you have some, you know, um, you know, plants that are wrapped around the prop of your boat and you put it in another mm -hmm. lake and they spread it can come like that wow. it can it can also be um species that you are uh, i don't know encouraged by over um fertilizing of agricultural land or just people's yards all the runoff of these nitrogen-based um fertilizers into the water creates algae blooms and, and mm. make, can make up so it can really things that we're doing are shifting our environment but the, in my book it's um, based on this beetle. It's called the mountain pine bark beetle, which is a very real beetle that has devastated forests in Colorado and California and led to a lot of these huge forest fires we're seeing. So in my book, 
I set the stage for this beetle to move to New Hampshire, which it does not exist in New Hampshire yet, but it is moving east across North America. Mm-hmm. Um, it moves on wind events. They call them big wind events, where literally the beetles move on the wind. Mm-hmm. They look for drought. They like thrive in a drought. Um, and so when land is dry and, and you know different, you know the, we're getting warmer um, and we're experiencing more droughts in different places in the country. So these invasive species are moving because um, there's encouraging places like, you know, like you and me, we want to live in a community that feels comfortable to raise a family. That's how invasive species are. They're just looking for a great place to settle down and have some babies and find some enough food to eat. And that's where invasive species come from. Wow. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We had a, we had a drought. I mean, I live in um, Connecticut, um, you know, Western Connecticut and the, we had a drought last summer which is unusual for us. I mean, the, our, our reservoir was super low. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, things are happening, right? What, so before, so you were a, you were a journalist before and, and you, then you're a mom and you, to four kids, <laughs> that, I mean, that's going to keep you busy. Yeah. How old were you when you, when you decided to buy this tract of land? I was in my 40s and I'm not, I'm going to guess I was about 44 maybe. And how old were the kids? Uh, so my kids right now, if we can backtrack, I, my, my youngest is 16 and my oldest is 28. Wow. And so they were, they were kind of spanning preschool, elementary, middle school, and high school all at the same time wow. when I built and So the farm. you're taking on learning how to do organic farming in this the middle of, you had to some young kids. I did. Yeah. So I think my son was in preschool when we bought the farm and he's 16 now. So it was a, um, I, this is also a cautionary tale. I'm not suggesting everyone go out and buy a farm and write a book, change careers (laughs) in their forties while they're raising four young children, but (laughs) it did work out. Okay. It was, um, yeah, and it wasn't really a conscious decision. It just seemed like this is what needed to happen. And it was more because the land was threatened than because I wanted to become a farmer. It, it was yeah. like kind of, it was an accidental entry into agriculture for me because I felt the only way to save the land was if I had a fiscally responsible reason to buy it, which meant I needed a business on it. Yeah. And the only business I could come up with was a farm. Wow. So, and had, so you, had, you, had, had you ever thought entry. about farming before this? Was this like, a, a was there a germ of this idea in your head before? Not really. I've always loved growing things. My mom laughs because we used to live in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts in a high rise apartment with a little balcony. And I used to try to grow corn on my balcony one year, which is a ridiculous proposition. I've always been trying to grow things and, um, you know, having things in containers in my yard. But I do have farming in my blood a little bit. My grandparents owned a farm and I spent summers there in Western Maryland. And I I have, you know, wonderful memories of planting and harvesting things with my grandfather and eating food, you know, being so proud of the dinner that I pulled out of the ground that afternoon with my grandfather. So it's something that I could visualize and it didn't seem like a foreign concept to me, but I had no experience. And, you know, spending a summer on your grandparents' farm picking potatoes is not agriculture. (laughs) That is not, it was a, um, it maybe, you know, wet my appetite for like appreciating it, but I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me though, what, 
you know, what comes back around from our childhoods, um, those, those seeds that are there that we don't even, we don't even realize that they're in us, you know, and then given the right circumstances, there it is ready to, ready to come out. Yeah. It's something that, that always, it felt very, um, all the memories of being on their farm were, were beautiful memories to me. And it was a seriously rustic farm. And we we did not have hot running water. And we didn't even have a shower or a bathtub. We used to have to heat water wow. to, on a, in a galvanized tub to take a bath. And it had um, the water for the house came directly out of a creek in the backyard. Like, no, just straight into the house. And Ooh, the only heat, that was cold. It was ice cold. And, and it had... Um, we had the only heat was from a wood stove. So it was a live, you know, spending summers on that farm was definitely a, um, a, like a different experience in my farm, which is, <clears throat> you know, much more of a business type farm, mm-hmm. but, um, but it made me love, it made me love, you know, working in the land and being outside. Yeah. And your grandparents were there year round, I assume. They were not there year round. They, my grandmother um, was a elementary school principal and they went back and forth. It's actually very ironic because, you know, we went back, I go back and forth to my farm. So I live in Boston, but my farm's in New Hampshire is about two hours away. And we had a family place in New Hampshire that our family has spent time there for a long time. And that's the forest that was threatened. And so I go back and forth between my farm and my house in Boston. And I, but I lived there full time and during growing season. Yeah. And I have a business partner who manages things when I'm not there full time. Um, and it's only, it's only two hours away. So it's not that big of a deal, yeah. but it is kind of exactly what my grandparents did, which that I never, so set, interesting. and I never set out to do that, but it yeah. just sort of happened. And my book, um, is dedicated to my grandmother, the one who owned that farm. Um, I dedicated uh-huh. my book to her cause she was such an inspiration to me. Wow. Wow. Isn't that incredible? You know, I have to tell you, um, when, when I started doing photography for the first time, it, it literally came out of nowhere. I, I never had thought I would ever be a, a professional photographer, but my grandfather was a hobbyist photographer, but to the point where he had it, he had his own dark room. You know, my uncle would experiment with pinhole photography. One of my aunts would also do photography. So, so it was there, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it just was never something I considered until the time was right for me, I guess, you know, it's so interesting the way those things pop up and, and, you know, hopefully we listen to those little calls and, and step into it. Um, you know, and I think as, you know, as a parent for me, it was, like I said, it wasn't necessarily a logical or smart thing to do at that moment in my my life, you know, being in my mid forties with all these kids crawling all over me, but it was the thing I needed to do then. But in hindsight, I think it was a really good parenting move because um, that and the book, both of them, because as I said, I was doing them simultaneously. And, you know, I can say, oh, yes, I'm a published novelist now. And yes, I have a farm that's, you know, operating now. But it was a really hard transition. Yeah. Um, both. I got a lot of rejections for the book before I found a publisher. And, you know, it, it was difficult. It took me 13 years to write the book because uh-huh. I was raising all these kids, building a farm, trying to, you know, just keep my head above water. And the farm, you know, took many years to build and, you know, get it operational. And I messed up so many times and my kids were there the whole time. Like they saw me get rejection letters and be devastated and heartbroken and then mm-hmm. right, go right back out and send another one out. What and a then, great lesson for them to, to watch so that, to watch you try and try again. 
Yeah, because it was absolutely not an easy journey. And I know a lot of writers talk about their journeys, you know, about how hard it is. And it's it takes so much like it's it isn't even it's not even self-confidence that the reason you keep going is just a compulsion. It's like a passion that there's no option to to give up on this book because I loved it and I put so much of my heart into it and I believed it believed in the book. So, and same with the farm, it was just moving forward by inches, not, you know, not by feet or miles. I was creeping towards these goals. And I think my kids, I, they have like, you know, an example of get back up, you know, when you fall over, when you, you know, and when somebody says no to you, just try another door and in the book. So it came out in January, uh, waiting for the night song. And after all those years of struggling and rejection, it came out and it was, um, CNN, Newsweek, Parade, and um, uh, USA Today all put it on their most anticipated book of the year list, which was like oh, a shock. Holy wow. It was crazy. Right? And then it got covered in um, Entertainment Weekly and the Chicago Review of Books. And it's been this crazy journey because this was the book that like, I couldn't sell. That's and amazing. I, and here wow. we are. Wow. So going back to before you wrote the book, um, had you all, did you always feel like you had a novel in you? Um, was that always something that you were like, someday I'm going to do that? Yeah. I think there's always been this, this tug between science and writing for me. And I, I can say that now looking back on my life, I didn't recognize it when I was younger, but so I went to college as a biochemistry major, but I graduated as a journalism major. And it was a hard decision for me because I loved both of them, but I love storytelling and I love science. And it took me my whole life to figure out I can write, be a storyteller who writes about science. It took me a long time to figure that out, but I always wrote stories. I used to, um, the setting of my book is, you know, takes place a lot in the woods. It starts with these little girls playing in the woods, imaginary games, imagining adventure and just being silly and creative and mischievous. And that was me as a child. But what I was doing as a kid is I used to, um, I was a very nerdy little girl and I used to write fan fiction for the Mork and Mindy TV show <gasps> and Wonder oh Woman. My God, I love Mork and Mindy. I oh know. my gosh. I and feel like Charlie's, we're soul sisters. And Charlie's Angels. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I used to write these scripts and my friends and I would act them out. So there's all Oh my God, stories. me too. I Can I tell you, this is hilarious. Okay. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I can't even believe I'm going to say this out loud. I was a total nerd geek girl too. Love Charlie's Angels. Yep. Also, Grease, the movie oh, Grease yes. at the time. Oh, yeah. I could say every word. Unbelievable. And I and about that time, I think I was like sixth grade, something like that. I was living on roller skates yes. at that point in my yes. life. Like if I was not in school and I was I was up and down the street on roller skates or yep. in our friend's garage, you know, she, yeah. if her parents' cars weren't in there, we would go into her garage. We would turn down the lights. Oh, yeah. It's like your own roller rink. Turn it into like a disco, right? And we did and, the same thing. And we would listen to Grease. And we had sweet, do. the three of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we started a club called Grease Angels. Oh, and my God. I was Kelly. And with the one of the other girls was Sabrina. I was Sabrina. Was in my, I was oh. always Sabrina. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's so funny. Oh my gosh. I think we yep. would have been besties. And I was also a, star, a card carrying Star Wars fan. So yep. my, these yes. are things my brother will never let me live down anyway. So I may as well just let everybody know about it. Yes. I know. I hear you. I was right there with you on the roller skates. We used to make up routines <laughs> on our roller skates to songs from, from Greece and Saturday Night Fever and Xanadu oh and all those funny. Hilarious. My husband and I were just talking about Xanadu like two days ago. Some song came on and I'm like, I'm pretty sure this was from Xanadu. Yes, I was um, in the dentist's office the other day and it came on and I was waiting for the dentist. I was texting my cousin. I'm like, I'm in the dentist here and they're playing Xanadu. <laughs> but yeah, it just takes you right back. It does. Yes. We're definitely aging, dating ourselves oh. exactly where we oh are in time gosh. by that. <laughs> so we've completely digressed. I'm sorry. I've taken us down some path. Yeah, I don't funny. know. <laughs> but we were talking about stories and how like right. I always, I was always writing them. I was always telling my mother used to run a puppet theater when I was a kid and she wrote all the scripts for the, for the theater. And on weekends I used to go around with her as an assistant and her to like help her with the puppets and behind the scene and um, like hand out candy to the kids after the show and stuff like that. And so I, my first, um, my first publishing credit was I wrote a puppet show when I was 10 that was produced. Fantastic. I, so I, there's always been stories, but I didn't know it was going to be my career path. Initially, I thought I was going to go into science. And so I did sort of eventually, you know, now that I'm in agriculture, I had to go back to school. I went back to Tufts and got a certificate in sustainable agriculture um, because I didn't know what I was doing. And it's mostly because I wanted to learn about soil science mm -hmm. and organic pest management. So it has come full circles. Like it was the stories and it was the science and it was journalism. And now it's science and fiction and all those things kind of all you know, it just took, I needed to mature a little bit to understand yeah. how they all were going to come together in my life. How it all, how it all rolls together. I have, I, I am such a fan. I'm So this is the thing. I was never, I was never good at science um, in school. I'm, I'm like, when it comes to, to, to the, the, the technical part of, of following the scientific method, I am not your girl. Right. But I have discovered as an adult that I absolutely love to read about science, to listen to like Science Fridays on NPR. And yes, I love you know, that. One of my favorite um, podcasts is uh, by Michelle Thaller from NASA. It's called Orbital Paths. And it's just, you know, thinking about this, this universe that we live in and all the experiments that are going on in NASA. It's, it's not in production anymore, but it got me through this year. Yeah. Just being able to think on that bigger scale of, of what life means, you know? And I think that fiction, um, it presents this opportunity to share stories that people might, you know, including stories about science, just like the podcast, it's storytelling. Yeah. I think it's, this, it's been, um, at least in my experience, it can be an invitation to people to engage with science if they're not scientists, you know, yeah. if they don't consider themselves a scientist, because my book, you know, it, it engages a lot of, you know, agricultural and climate change themes in the background, but it's a story about friendship. It's a story about two women and a complicated friendship and, um, you know, secrets and, you know, some really difficult things, but it also engages climate, but people come to it for the story. They come to it because it's a suspense novel. It's a story of friendship between two women 
And then the other stuff's in the background. And I did have this one moment um, about a month after my book was published that I got a review public written. And you know, reviews can go one of two ways, you know, that you can tell when right. you start reading it if it's gonna be a good one or a bad one. And the reviewer started the review saying, I'm really not interested in climate change. I'm not interested in climate science. It's not affecting me. I don't really pay attention to the news. So I was bracing for this really scathing review because I felt like this isn't gonna resonate with this reader. And she went on and said, but I loved the characters. I love this story and I love the plot. By the end of the book, I cared about the characters. So I cared about what they cared about. And now I think differently about climate change. Wow. And I was just like, that is really a That's got to be the, re- the best review you've ever got. It is. She only gave me four stars, but it's still my favorite review. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it was to me, this, it was like this evidence that, um, when, so when you read a novel, you're putting your worldview aside for 10 hours or however long it takes to read a book. And you're choosing to read, enter the world through somebody else's viewpoint and see mm-hmm. the world through their eyes. And that's a real act of empathy, you know, to give up your worldview to take on someone else's. And then mm-hmm. if you see their pain, their grief, their joys, they sort of become part of you a little bit. Like you, you are, you know, secondhand experiencing their emotions and they leave an imprint on you. And when you put the book down, those memories stick with you, even if the story doesn't a little bit, yeah. this idea that, so maybe climate change isn't affecting me today. You know, I am a, 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 a privileged North American living in a community where I have water, food, relative security. I'm not threatened by a hurricane today or a drought, but other people are. Mm-hmm. And so if you aren't feeling the effects of climate change and you're reading about someone else who is, it, it humanizes that it is happening and it's generally happening first and worst to communities of color, you know, black and brown communities and indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And from where I sit in, you know, in New England, it's, um, I'm pretty protected and quite privileged to not be experiencing it. But when you read someone else's experience, you recognize the humanity in it. So I think fiction yeah, it's is- those is, mirror neurons that are kicking into gear, right? It's why I love story. It, yeah. it, it allows us to connect with other people in a way. And, and then, like you said, you, you stay connected. Yeah. It, that, that doesn't go away that, that those mirror neurons, once they're gone, gone off and you've got that emotional connection to something that, that empathy is, you know, because sometimes when you read a book, you know, years later, you can remember, did I like the book? Did I have a good feeling about the book? But you might not remember all the details of what happened. Oh, I but never the, remember the emotional, the yeah, the happened, emotional right? imprint will stick with you, or yes. at least that's the hope. <laughs> that's my goal. I hope it does. But it, it, it's like a Trojan horse, you know, it, like you can sneak in ideas in fiction and people can read it just for the story, which is great. If you want a suspense novel, read my book. This is a great thriller. It's a great story about friendship and it's a lot of nature imagery. Um, it's very like tactile, sensory detail, heavy book. And um, which I love reading those kind of books. So you can enjoy it for all those things. And you could also maybe be moved by some of the science in the book, but if you're not, that's okay too. Cause it's really, it, and it for primarily a book always has to be a story. Yeah, you know, or absolutely. Else nobody's going to read it. I mean, we were talking about this whole idea before we before we hit the record button, and I I told you I was just listening to the audio version of uh, the parable the uh, by parable Octavia the Butler, sower. the yeah. sower, and man, what amazing! Because the book was written in the seventies, yeah, and it's set in basically now she, I think it start may start in 2025 or 2024 and goes up through 2027. And, and what she's seeing, I mean, it could, it's, it's viable. 
yeah, the way she's is. written it, that that things could go down this way. We just may be off by maybe 10, 15 years, 20 yeah. years. I don't know. Um, but it's this whole kind of a post-apocalyptic, yeah. right? And yeah, but climate, climate change yeah. is definitely, a, I mean, so hugely part of that story. It is. And this but, whole genre of climate fiction, I think, you know, she's one of the first people who was writing about climate in fiction. Um and then, you know, Margaret Atwood, too. I mean, you know, we always think of The Handmaid's Tale as her, but she looks mm-hmm. like um, her other books, the Matt Adam trilogy and Oryx and Crake. And um, these books are very climate focused and they were before, you know, you know, we're talking about it more. You know, it's in the media more, it's in the news more, but people were writing about it. But now, oh my gosh, there are so many fiction writers who are engaging climate change in their books. Some of them are like these apocalyptic dystopian or, you know, science fiction books. And some of them are like mine. They're like a very contemporary, very realistic look at climate change as it's already happening. There's also romance novels that are coming out that are like the characters, you know, climate scientists or that it's just like showing up everywhere because like, how do we live in this world and not talk about climate at some level? It's great because, you know, you think about climate change and it's like it's like when you think about the budget and it's you're thinking suddenly in trillions of dollars or you're thinking about climate change and it just for us, it's 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 a thing out there. It's not. Yeah. And for for those of us who are privileged and living where we're living, it it, it isn't in in our face. Yeah, you know, and so it's hard to connect. It's hard to 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 wrap our heads around the reality of it. But yeah, to suddenly working- have a story where you're connected to people, that I mean, what a powerful way to involve people. And one of the things I tried to do with my books, it's called Waiting for the Night Song. And Night Song references a songbird in the forest in New Hampshire. And it's a very real bird. It's called the Bicknell's Thrush. And it's endangered. Um, we're losing this bird. And the reason we're losing it is because of deforestation and hurricanes in the Caribbean. Because this little bird migrates to the Caribbean every winter mm-hmm. and its habitat's being destroyed. So every year it comes back in smaller and smaller numbers. And I used this idea in my book that in the, you know, I said it's a two timeline story. My character, um, her, my main character's name is Katie Kessler and we get her point of view as an 11 year old as an adult and the chapters go back and forth. And when she's an 11 year old and she lives in this little house in the woods with her parents and she hears this bird, this songbird, and she l- recognizes it and loves this little bird. It's a teeny tiny gray bird that you would not notice. It's just this little bird. It would, it would you'd fly by you and you wouldn't even notice it but she loves this bird. So she comes back decades later to kind of face up to this past mistake she made when she was 11 and the woods are different and the the bird's not there. Um, it's not extinct. It's just not prevalent in the forest. So the waiting for the night song is a sense of longing and nostalgia for what we're losing mm-hmm. in the forest. And this recognition that we are connected to the Caribbean. And you know, this little songbird that's dying in the Caribbean and not coming back to New Hampshire is leaving a hole in my ecosystem where my farm is. And it might not be obvious. It's not like, it's not a bear. It's not a moose. It's not something we're going to see like, where are the moose? It's it's little tiny gray bird, but it has a role in the ecosystem. And every time we lose something, everything else shifts just mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, maybe something else comes in. And this also, this little bird has a particular talent for helping a forest recover after a forest fire. And so you, when you lose something, even something tiny, like an insect or a, you know, species of like a fungus, or you don't, you don't know what the bigger impact is of losing even just tiny little things. So in my book, I did a lot of work trying to connect New England to other parts of the world because, you know, 
one action we take here could have a big impact somewhere else and we don't know about it. Just like we might not think logically that a hurricane in the Caribbean is going to have an impact on my farm in New Hampshire. So I was trying to you know, draw some lines um, yeah. that we're kind of all in this together. It's amazing. We don't know what we don't know, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what we don't know, you know? <laughs> but Yes, exactly. Right. It's, um, and we never know the, imp- yeah, we just don't know the impact we're having and, and, and in more ways than one. It's amazing. What, so I'm just curious, is there anything that you wish you had known when you, when you started down your path? Wow. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm where I'm glad I'm where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And if anything had been different, would I have landed here? You know, if I hadn't fallen down all those times and if I hadn't been rejected or if I hadn't like screwed up that corn crop, I wouldn't have learned for the next season. So, I mean, I guess somebody could have told me all that stuff in the beginning, but I also, I'm so proud of my book in part because I fought like heck to get there. You know, I, I didn't have one of those stories where I sent it out and 15 publishers were bidding on it. It was, I scrapped to get this publishing deal and I worked so hard and same with the farm. I mean, the farm is different in that you can't revise nature. <laughs> you get what you get and you work with it and you make better choices or you make better decisions. But I think I had to learn all those things. So I mean, maybe I would like to know it was going to be okay because <laughs> there were definitely days I didn't. But I think, I guess the thing is trust your passion. That's what I would say to people is mm. believe in your own passion and the reason that you're doing something. Because for me, there was a day when I went walking in the woods on my farm before I bought it, when I was like, is this crazy? Like, is this a crazy? Yes, it was right. crazy. The right. answer was yes. But I was looking at this forest and it was beautiful. It's like in August and everything was so green and the birds were you know everywhere and the idea that that force might not exist if I didn't do something exactly right then mm-hmm. made it all the reason to do it and then to just trust that that was going to be okay which yeah. there were a lot of days it didn't feel like it was but so I don't know I don't know if I'd change anything except that I would maybe just reinforce that like just trust your own passion and follow it yeah absolutely it's amazing like it's it's kind of like it's that stepping into something, even though it is crazy, even even though you, you can see and anybody around you is going to be like, that's crazy. People still say that to me. (laughs) What are you doing? But if you, if it won't leave you alone, then you have to honor that and step into the crazy and see where it takes you. And every, you know, I have um, about two miles of trails in my woods and we've opened them up to um, the state. They act, the state, I, I own them, they're fully mine, but I allow the state to operate them like a state park. So anybody can come walk in those woods and That's see the, awesome. the trees and birds and not near the, we have a barn with horses and where I plant the vegetables or they can't go there, but it's a big property. So there's lots of trails, but I feel like everybody can go into those woods where I had that moment. And there's, and I, when I walk, I see moose print and bear trail all the time. And every time I do, I'm like, I won, you know, yeah. that was the whole point. That was like, it wasn't ever about the corn. It was about the moose tracks. Right. So, so. That connects you to what was, what was driving you the whole time. Yeah. 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 It's not about the corn. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> it's not about the corn. <laughs> and I do love my corn. Don't get me wrong, but. Right. But you know what? It's, it's like when we, when we step into doing something, it's so, we, I think so often, if we substitute corn for money, let's say, yeah. 
in that phrase. It's not about the money or, you know, but we vet, it's like the, what we place value on, right? Yeah, yeah. And and how do you define success? I'm constantly looking at that for myself. Like, am, am I tying it to, to my net worth or am I tying it to what I'm able to do on a day-to-day basis? And am I am I excited about getting up in the morning? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that I agree with you because um, the, the the my um, business model isn't brilliant. You know, it's just barely hanging on, but it's surviving. But for me, if you ask me, it's thriving because it exists mm-hmm. and because, you know, because it's, it's still there. So yeah, it's defining your own success. And for me that actually, to be honest, we didn't talk about this, but this was, that was actually a big deal for me because I had a different idea of what success was supposed to look like. You know, I was a journalist. I wanted to go work with the New York times or I wanted to write for national geographic. And that's what you did. If you're a journalist, this is the vision of success. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment where I had stepped off that and had to redefine, but that isn't what I want. That's not what success looks like for me. And I was the kind of that, like that kid in school who was like, you know, one in A's in every class and, you know, extra credit. And, you know, so for me choosing to not go for the extra credit was like a big, like, you know, a big mental shift for me to be like, oh, it's not about being an editor at the New York times. It's about like buying a farm. And that was not an easy shift for me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's about honoring what was inside, what, what was, like you said, honoring your passion. Like, yeah. like just, boy, and, and you have to take the time to even tap into what that is. How do you, sometimes you don't even know. Or you right? don't listen or you don't want to see it. And, you know, I mean, there's still days that seems like a ridiculous thing to me. Like, what am I doing? You know, when I go, you know, it, it's there, I mess things up all the time on the farm and I'm learning and it's, it's been less than 10 years that I've been farming. And so I am learning, but some days I just get, and you know, I get frustrated. So it isn't like it's all rainbows and happy days. Um, the way I'm making it sound is hard. It's really hard, but yeah, it's my, <laughs> yeah. And the moose tracks are there. The moose tracks are always there. And we have bears that still come to the yard and those bears mm-hmm. in where my house is would not, they come through that forest. They would not come there if it weren't, if that forest had been clear cut. Yeah. And if there was a strip mall there, that would, there would be no bears. Yeah. You won. I won. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. I'm just so inspired by that. What, so what's coming up that you're excited about? Anything? Yeah. So I'm working on a second book and this one will not what? take 13 years because I have a contract. <laughs> so I can't take 13 years. It's so good to have a deadline, isn't it? It is. Yes. I mean, the, journalist in me, the journalist in me does thrive on deadlines. So this is a good thing. But yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, it's going to come out in um, sometime between January and March of 2023. And it's okay. called The Last Beekeeper. And it's again, a novel about with climate elements. And I also am a beekeeper. We didn't talk about that, but no, I, um, um, so I've lost many colonies of bees that have died to colony collapse disorder, which inspired this book. And it's, um, it's set in the very near future. So it's not a crazy looking future. There's no like flying hoverboards and weird technology. And I don't put a date on it. It's just like a little bit in the future. Um, so I don't put a year on it, but I introduce an event that hastens the collapse of our pollinators in a way like we're all talking about it now like oh that saved the bees and you know right. bees are dying I, I i create a thing that makes it it happen faster so it speeds up what we thought was a long time we had ahead of us and and so it's about the relationship between um a beekeeper 
who is known as the last beekeeper because he's like the world's most famous last thriving beekeeper and his Mm -hmm. daughter. And so it's about the relationship between the father and the daughter that's deteriorating as the bees die. Mm. Um, so that yeah so I'm very excited I'm writing it right now human story tying it all together that's awesome and I'm very excited because I love beekeeping like the just the smells and the vibrations and the textures of it where night song is really a story about the woods and mountains and forests this one is about connection to the land and bees all the sensory details you can think of with bees so look for that one in 2023 oh my gosh well I'm gonna have to have you back Absolutely. Yeah, we can talk bees next we'll time. We'll talk about Xanadu again. Oh my gosh, yes. We'll put it on in the background. We can wear our roller skates. It'll be great. Put on some leg warmers. Oh my gosh, yes. And those little skinny uh, Olivia Newton-John headbands we always to wear. This is going to be great. I'll put it on my Oh t- my gosh. Well, yeah, boy, I'm having a massive flashback right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is fun to talk about. Yeah, my kids don't appreciate my my Xanadu phase, but no. there it is. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Wow. It has just been beyond delightful to talk to you. Um, so I definitely want to stay in touch. And uh, I, your book is, I'm, that's my next read. Excellent. Well, I am in. I'm just sorry that I didn't get to read it before we talked because this kind of came up quicker than. Uh, yes. Well, I was careful to put no spoilers in our conversation, but hopefully good. it whet your appetite. So you'll and you'll understand the context of it when you read it. The backdrop of the story is my farm. It's my land, my home. So when you're reading it, you can just you can put me in in for the main character because yeah. between you and me that she's me had a feeling <laughs> yeah yeah that is so amazing wow oh it, thank you for the inspiration it, it, you got me just just wanting to um keep going and and thinking about like what's next and it you know thinking it's not about the corn it just isn't love it yeah Love that thought. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to be thinking about that now. It's not about the corn. It's about the moose tracks. (laughs) It's the weirdest things catch my ear. I don't know why. Yeah, me too. I love that. But thank you so much for having me. This has been such a fun conversation and I can't wait till we talk again. Me neither. Me neither. Thank you. Well, there you have it. So getting back to your crazy idea, that secret you might be keeping Do you have an idea that you've been setting aside because it's impractical? Are you kidding me? That's the story of my life. I'm an idea girl. I get them all the time. Most of the time, I let those crazy ideas fall to the wayside, but every now and then, one of them gets a hold of me and won't let go. Kind of like a certain podcast I know of. Do yourself a favor. Take some time to research what it might take to turn your crazy idea into a reality. Try it on. Take a class, try it out. It's not about whether or not you succeed, really. It's about who you'll become in the exploration of that idea. It's about who you'll become in the effort to make it happen. If you wanna know more about Julie, I'll have that information for you in the show notes along with some of the other things that we talked about. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 55. And of course, while you're there, you can also find a link to the sign-up sheet for your free guide, Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. 
Let's shake things up, my friend. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.